I missed two weeks. Last week I wasn't here because we were uh, taking our, our son to scholarship weekend uh, at one of the schools he's looking at. And two weeks ago I wasn't here because of uh, the COVID, uh, which I finally got. Um, and, and during my quarantine, uh, you know, I did the, the thing that a lot of people, you know, what, what shows do you watch during quarantine? Well, I did watch a show. I watched uh, Station Eleven. And Station Eleven is this uh, post-apocalyptic show. Uh, show. Uh, it, it has um, essentially a, a flu has, has hit the whole world. It happens very quickly. And there, there are very few people left, essentially. And uh, there, there are these characters who are left. And they end up in Michigan. And there's a group of them that are in a traveling symphony and, and acting troupe. And every summer, they make this tour around uh, to different small communities uh, in the area, and they put on their shows. And, and the woman who, at the time, leads uh, says this um, uh, in the show. She says, we're the traveling symphony. We travel for a reason. We burn the house down, then go. Uh, just try to make the world make sense for a minute. And you know, they blame you if you stay but they love you like you save them when you come back. And, and they talk about why they do this thing, that they, that they leave and then they come back. And it's because, um, that she says, they, they, they feel like you saved them if you come back because they've experienced so much loss, so many things that have not come back and never will. So the idea that they would every summer that they would come back to these communities is this thing that gives hope. And they would tell these stories. It gives them hope because somebody has come back. And there's also this theme of not only do people lose those things and those connections and those people that they lost at the very beginning. But then when it's showing them 20 years later, they've realized that if they get separated from somebody, even after uh, essentially the flu uh, destroyed the world, if they get separated, there's no way to connect back with them. They're, they're, they're not going to see them. And so there's, uh, I, I don't think it's giving away too much to say that there is some coming back. It connects just this theme, right? Uh, and, and the coming back is the, is the beautiful part, right? Uh, and, and we think about this as we think about the finality of death. And yet as we look here at this passage... There is an incredible hope because we have uh, the ultimate coming back. If you have uh, a Bible that has titles to the different sections, the extra biblical titles, uh, this first section that was read is, is the coming of the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is Jesus. And he's the one talking about this story. And he's talking about the fact that he's going to come back. This is, is the greatest of all comeback stories, the greatest of all returns. And there are significant implications for it that bring us great hope in the midst of a messed up world, in the midst of the loss of Gary Boring, in the midst of all kinds of things that cause us to mourn and experience pain and and wish that things were not the way that they are, there is this incredible hope. And we're going to see what this coming is and what it means. So what, what is this coming? When is this coming? And what is it? What, what do we do in light of it? Those are going to be our three points. Let me, let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the beauty of your promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first little section here, 25 through 28, is uh, the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is very clearly Jesus. It's a, it's a term that he's used to refer to himself already in the Gospels. It comes 
uh, from the book of Daniel that gave these promises of the end times. And Jesus is the son of man. So he is talking about his own return when he comes and he makes all things right. When he comes and, uh, and he brings ultimate uh, redemption. That is, that is the promise here. And that's, that's what this is. This, is. this is all a promise of God. What is the coming? It's a promise from Jesus here, the second person of the Trinity. It's from God that things are going to be made right. And we have a longing for that. So actually when we read the beginning here about the signs coming and there's going to be distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves and people fainting with fear because of what is coming to the world. Like, we, we resonate with that. We feel like those things are happening now. We feel like uh, this is true, that there is this, this distress and perplexity, that people are fainting with fear. What, what is coming on the world? We, we all experience that. And so we, we, we think, oh, is there, there's, there's some solution. One of the commentators uh, that I read on this says, uh, that are, this universal experience that we have, that there's a longing that things ought not be as they are. We all have that longing, that there would be no death. There's so many things that we think ought not be as they are, and that, we, that, that things cannot be accepted in the state that they're in. We don't just say, oh, it's all fine. It's an eschatological longing, he says. And eschatology is, is essentially the, the study and knowledge of the end times. It says it's an eschatological longing that we have. And the Gospels proclaim that there's a sure hope for the future. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying that there's a sure hope. Not wishful thinking that some general experience of love defined differently by everybody is going to make all things right. No, there is a sure hope for the future. And this hope is grounded. It's not grounded in history or logic or intuition. But in Jesus' declaration that in the final day, the Son of Man will return in glory and power to judge evil, end suffering, and gather his own to himself. And that is what Jesus is speaking of here. He's saying, here's a promise. And it's based on me and my life. And to that point, what he's done so far, which is uh, heal the sick and cast out demons and calm the seas. He has demonstrated himself to be God. He's forgiven sins. This thing that only God can do. And we know what's coming in Luke, just a few chapters from now, he's going to die, but then he's going to rise from the dead. So when he returns, he's going to be, bring that kind of power and that kind of work to bear. We see some of the ways in this passage that it describes the coming of the Son of Man. What's going to happen at that point? In verse 28, there is redemption. He speaks of redemption. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is actually the only time in the Gospels that this word redemption occurs, but but Paul expands on it and talks about redemption a good bit. We, we see in Romans 8.23 that there is this groaning that we all have. Actually, not just us and our bodies, but all of creation groans and longs for the redemption of our bodies. And that's the promise. That adoption of sons means the redemption of our bodies. Which is... I mean, so many beautiful things there. It's, it's, it's not just this spiritual thing. It's also a physical thing. God cares about it all. He created us as physical beings, and he's promised this, this physical redemption in the end. And, and, and I think about that certainly uh, with Gary in these last 10 years dealing with Parkinson's and it beginning to progress over these last years. The, the promise is that his body is redeemed and he no longer struggles with those pains. 
And, and that's true what, wherever we are and whatever we might be experiencing or whatever we will experience in the future. There's this promise of bodily redemption. We find it as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this beautiful passage of the resurrection. And it's, it's, it's a reminder that the resurrection of Jesus points to the resurrection of all of us in the future. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's saying the coming of the Son of Man is this picture of death being done away with. Revelation 21 gives the picture of Jesus uh, the new heavens and the new earth coming and God saying, I want to be with you as your people and, and uh, you be my people and I'll be your God. And there will be no more crying or death or pain anymore. That is the promise of the coming of the Son of Man. Described here in these ways in which the physical world matters, in which we care about it, in which there are promises for it, in which God reigns and rules. Verse 31 that his kingdom will come, that this, these things, when you see them taking place, it's a sign that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God is his reign and rule. And there's a sense in which it has already come in Jesus, but it's not yet completely fulfilled until he returns and makes all things right. That's the coming of the Son of Man, his reign and rule, making all things as they should be, so that it will no longer be that we'll experience the world as it ought not be, that we don't want to accept, but things will be exactly as they should be. And this is an eternal promise. Look at verse 33. He says that heaven and earth will pass away. That's everything passing away. And there is a picture throughout Scripture of in the end, there's both continuity and discontinuity, new heavens, new earth, redemption of what is here, this place made right, not just you know, escape to heaven, but this place made right, new heavens, new earth. But there is some discontinuity. The heavens and earth will pass away, but... My words will not pass. My words, what he speaks, what he promises, what he says will be the case, it will happen, and it is an eternal promise. It does not end. That's what he's telling us here. There is eternity at stake. And and this is just one of the many places in the Old and New Testament that look to this promise of God coming back, that ultimate return. The question then becomes for us because we want to know and because this passage speaks to it is then okay when is that going to happen god gave these promises it's been two thousand years now right and and he he says there's this promise of verse 32 this generation uh, will not pass away until all has taken place and there is disagreement among those who love god's word and trust god's word and have it as their foundation of exactly what is going on is this generation mean that it is that generation that was hearing this at that time and that what he was talking about in that specific sign is the destruction of Jerusalem, both the temple and, and uh, the, the people being driven out of their home and persecuted incredibly. Is it something that that's what it is? Something that this generation is those when, those when the signs actually start to happen, that that generation will not pass away before Jesus returns. And then, okay, what do the signs mean? And then there's some that would say this generation, which is often used linguistically to describe a a type of person. So those who trust in Jesus is this generation. 
There's disagreement there, right? And so let me just admit that I have the answer, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, th- there is a lot of mystery here that we don't fully understand. I don't have the answer. And so I, I, I recognize that uh, this question of when, I, I don't fully understand what Jesus is saying here. I know that we're waiting, that we're in this in-between time. And yet I can still trust in his promises because... Even as I feel the distress, even as I read verses 25 and 26, and I feel the distress of the nations and the perplexity and the fainting with fear and what's coming on the world and all of these things, it, it, I, I feel those things. And I think, oh, yes, those things are, are happening now. But, but I know and trust that, that God and his word, they are certain and sure they will not pass away and that they can be trusted And there's a sense in which they are God's words and not mine. So this coming soon, this this mystery, I can look to him and know that he's in control and that he's because he's God. It won't always make sense to me. I mean, one thing he tells us in Matthew 24 is no one will know the day or the time. So, okay, I I shouldn't know the day or time. And when people, you know, begin to uh, pick out the day and time based on the news that they're reading, uh, it's just on its face. They're going to be wrong. I mean, maybe somebody will guess it right one day, uh, but it'll be a guess. It won't be something they actually know. They probably won't. It will come as a thief in a night, 1 Corinthians 5, we're told. So we're not going to know exactly when it happens. There is that mystery here. And, and yet we know that God, because he's God, he works in ways that we don't fully understand. We're told in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. God is God, and we are not, and he is not bound by time in the same way that we are. And if you use that calculation, it's been a couple of days since Jesus was here. Or hundreds of thousands of years. But he's God, and we're not. And we can look and trust in him. And yet what he's calling us to here in that waiting is to actually think about the end, which we don't often do, and there are a few reasons that we don't. One is... Uh, we get frustrated with people who abuse the, the talk of end times or uh, eschatology. Uh, you know, the, the most familiar thing that we can think about is uh, often what comes to a lot of people's minds, or maybe it's just people of my generation older, is the Left Behind series and, you know, the movies with either Nicolas Cage or Kirk Cameron, which I never saw, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. And uh, I mean, the reality is there, even within those theological streams, there are those that would say, yeah, this is not what the Bible is, is saying. There's been a shift there. Like the Bible does not teach those things. So it feels weird and there's too much focus there. Or there are those that have predicted the end times as they read their news and that sort of thing. And so uh, the reality is the abuse of eschatology leads to the neglect. It's also true that we have you know, books like Revelation that are difficult to understand, right? So we don't think about it. And yet what we're called to do here in this passage is to actually think about it. And I think to think about the promises and, and the waiting that comes. And in the midst of that, to be honest about both the pain and the joy. And that's one of the things that we try to do in our worship service every week. And it's certainly highlighted this morning as we're celebrating baptism and we're mourning loss. That, that we can be honest about the waiting. We can be honest about the pain. We can be honest about the joy. And, and that in that, we do have to wait. 
And, and we wish it were more certain than it is. I, I feel like I, I wish even with this lesson of the fig tree, I'm like, I feel like it's even a little more waiting and nebulous than that. You know, this, you, you start to see uh, the leaves, you know that the summer is coming. It feels a little bit more like you're in the, the dead of winter and, and you know the summer's coming because it's been experienced before. I mean, walking here in the teens this morning, like it's really hard for me to imagine uh, six months from now when uh, not only as I'm walking this morning, I think, ah, it'd be great to have some long underwear on right now. And in six months, it's going to be, man, I wish I could just have shorts on. I'm wearing pants because I'm going to church. You know, it's like, it's hard to imagine that moment, right? It's a, a little bit more like waiting for that pandemic to come. I don't know how many of you in the last uh, couple of years have watched the movie Contagion. Um, it was a, a movie from 2011, and there's some remarkable parallels to the pandemic that we have actually experienced. And it was from 2011. There were people that were saying we should be thinking about the possibility of a pandemic and masks and social distancing and all these terms that we haven't even thought about until now, right? There were some epidemiologists and scientists that were talking about this, and uh, and, and there was a lot of unknown of if or when it would come. We feel like we're more in, in that uh, kind of situation here where we don't know when this is going to happen. And, and, and there's a question of, okay, what do we do in the midst of that? So if we, if we think, okay, there is a pandemic coming, what would you do differently? And maybe with this particular pandemic, you, you know, maybe you'd get some Zoom stock. Uh, there wouldn't be a lot of things that you would do. But if you knew something was coming, like the one in the, the show Station Eleven that wipes all, out almost everybody, there, there's some doomsday prepping that you would do, right? And I'm not, uh, uh, the, the Bible doesn't actually lead, lead us to think toward a, a doomsday scenario uh, as folks think about that. It calls us, though, to think about this incredibly significant thing that will happen in the end and to, to think so that this last section, it's titled in my Bible, Watch Yourselves. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, that the day come upon you, that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. There's a promise, but with the promise, there's also this warning that if you ignore it, it's to your own peril. If we ignore the coming of Jesus, if we ignore the fact that he's going to return, it comes at our own peril. That it would come upon us suddenly like a trap, that we could be trapped. And so he's calling us to think about this reality and its implications, to, to watch yourselves. And there are many ways in which we can be distracted. And he kind of lays out two distractions here. One is to be classified as the dissipation and drunkenness, which is essentially sin. There are all kinds of things in this world that, that tempt us uh, to turn to, to other things. And, and there, you know, some of the things that are, that are obvious, dissipation actually would include drunkenness, but other excesses, whether uh, sexual or greed, or it, it would encompass a lot of things, right? And, and we have to admit that there is, is sin, that the, when the Bible calls us to live in a way that honors and glorifies God, that it's actually for our benefit, that allows us to live as we were created to live. There are times where it, it seems more appealing to live in other ways. And our culture is regularly telling us of, of ways to find fulfillment that are outside of God's plan for us. And, and we, can, we, we, should, and, uh, we should talk and think about those things, right? But he goes on to talk about, not in addition to that, are uh, the cares of this life. And, and I don't think he's talking about, we find this all throughout Scripture, is uh, he's not talking about things that 
that are necessarily bad in and of themselves. We all have cares of life, relationships and jobs and finances and, uh, and neighborhoods and being friends and in relationship with other people. All of those things are important. And, and, and what we find throughout Scripture is that the, the gospel in relationship with Jesus actually impacts all of those things. But there is the chance, pretty easily in fact, John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. What does that mean? That, that's this idea that we are quick to take things, good things even, and we're, we make them the most important things. That we allow all kinds of things to push Jesus and his return, and the implications of that, just to the side, to not even think about it. Often, again, good things. We actually, in our catechism this morning, saw this idea of idolatry, those things that we would put before him. And maybe they're good things, but we're called to put, put the Lord at the most important thing. And he's given us his word that will not pass away as this sign to draw us into these truths, to remind us again and again. But we become distracted. The Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's books are just full of great stories. They were my favorite books growing up. But so much of it uh, analogous to our Christian life. And there's a story in the silver chair where Eustace Scrub and Jill Pole end up in Narnia. And uh, for various reasons, Jill ends up alone her first time there with Aslan, the Jesus character. This, this uh, beautiful, welcoming, scary, terrifying lion, right? And he, he's sending him on this adventure. And he says, here are the four signs that you need to... Remember to move forward in the journey. Repeat these and remind yourself of them continually. But obviously, in the midst of the adventure, they begin to forget those things. So there's this moment where one of the signs is that you shall find the writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what the writing tells you. And so when they finally find themselves in the midst of this, uh, what is ultimately a big, massive stone, these stone words, they... uh, they are not looking for it, and so they don't see it. It's, it's large, and they would have to be thinking about it, but they're not thinking about it, and so they miss it, and they run into some significant danger where they're almost eaten um, because they weren't paying attention, right? And so the, there is this, this picture that, that Lewis is giving us of, of God has given us his word. He's given us one another. He's given us prayer to remember these things. The application here can be fairly simple. You know, read God's word and, and pray. And not in a legalistic way to earn his favor, but, but to be focused on those things which, uh, which we're called to be focused on. Those things which actually are made for us in order that we might flourish and live as we were created to live. And, and if, if you need a suggestion of, of a way to actually make that practical... We continue to have the, the daily prayer plan guides that uh, walk us through some prayers and God's word every day. They're out there on the table. Please help yourself to one. These will last through the end of, they actually last till March 1st. They say Christmas and Epiphany. Don't, don't be confused. Christmas was you know, longer than we typically think it is than Epiphany. It lasts till March 1st. If you need one of those as a place to start, there are all kinds of Bible reading plans that we could uh, suggest to you or you can find online. But the, it, the, the reality is, is this idea of watching yourselves, it actually affects and shapes your life. Because if we're not, we're, we're using the catechism, right? This is the first time in a, uh, that we've used the catechism as part of our confession of faith. Not today, but in this season. And, and catechism is this idea of, 
of systematic instruction. And, and if we're not using the catechism, we're not using God's word, we're being, even if we don't recognize the system, we're being catechized, we're being instructed by other things. And often, the most common for us these days is the, our phones and what's on our phones. I, I mean, I've been convicted this week as you know, think about what, what's the first thing you do in the morning? Do you reach over and pick up your phone? What's the latest news? What's the weather going to be? What's going on in social media? How am I curating my presence on social media? You, you can also find dissipation there. You can find readily acceptable in our culture pornography. Um, but there, there are also just things that aren't bad. The news. I don't know if it's bad. Uh, the news and social media. And we're being shaped and catechized by those things instead of the Lord. And that's, it. that's all of us. I mean, that's kids. I can't uh, imagine growing up with that from the beginning, right? I'm, I'm old and didn't have a smartphone until... Yeah, so... And it, and it affects me, right? It affects all of us. It, it, is, it is a challenge that we, we, that we face. And the question should regularly be, what is shaping us? What is catechizing us? What is making us who we are? And what Jesus is saying is there's something amazing coming. You're in this world and it is a mess and you're waiting, but there's something beautiful, awesome coming. That death itself is conquered. That Jesus is going to return and make all things right. No more crying, no more death, no more pain. And you need to think about it and be shaped by it. This truth and this reality, my word does not pass away. Fairly simple to, to look and turn to him and find hope there. I pray that's exactly what we do. And it does take, it, it takes that watching yourself. It takes a little bit of work, right? It's not just, oh, that's great. And, and go, it's like, okay, what, what actually would I do? What steps would I take? Would I grab one of the daily prayer plans? Would I make a plan to read the word, delete apps from my phone, whatever it might be, right? But to watch and see this beautiful promise from God. And its impacts for us in the midst of crazy, difficult times in our lives in this world. There's hope offered here. Let me pray.